It's Friday, May 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The SAT, the college entrance exam that is taken by about 2 million students each year, is adding a new metric for college admissions officers to factor into their decisions, an adversity score to measure students' hardships. The score is calculated using 15 factors, including crime rates, poverty levels from the student's high school, and more. Doug Belkin, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the score works and how it can impact the chances of getting into college. Next, President Trump has put forward a new merit-based immigration plan that would change the asylum process, fund more border security, and change who qualifies for a green card. Left out of the proposal, anything to do with undocumented immigrants here now and the Dreamers. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for Trump's new immigration plan. Finally, if you live in the city, your mental health could be more at risk than others. Living in the city means dealing with stressors like air and noise pollution, pollution from traffic, and even your neighbors. Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us for how where you live can impact your mental health. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. All the kids being lifted up here are not just lifted up as repayment for what they've suffered or for their adversity, but because despite that adversity, they've worked hard and accomplished great things. It's looking at the resourcefulness of students. For those who less is given, do they do more with it? Joining us now is Doug Belkin, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about the SATs and the College Board. The SAT, which is that college entrance exam, is taken by about 2 million students a year And they're adding a thing called an adversity score to their test results. It's intended to help admissions officers account for factors like educational or socioeconomic disadvantages that could depress students' scores. The college board has been working on this for some time now. Tell us a little bit about their plan with this and how they want schools to use this. So they started to develop this around 2015 when schools, they say, began to ask for more information, more data about the kids who were submitting their SAT scores. They wanted to get a sense of the context from where the kids were coming from. So the SAT developed environmental context dashboard, and they collect a lot of data, some of it, most of it from public records, some proprietary, that looks at the neighborhoods and the schools that these kids are coming from. So, for instance, in the neighborhood, they're pulling information, looking at poverty rates, crime rates, if houses are abandoned, if families are intact or or broken up. And then in the schools, they're looking at the relative wealth of the schools and the performance of the kids in the schools, how many advanced placement classes are offered there, what the average SAT is, how many kids go to college. And the idea is to paint a picture of the place from which these kids are coming from so that the score that they send in has more context for the admissions officer on the other end. The College Board had a beta test going. There was 50 colleges that used that score last year. It seems like it might have been deemed a success. They're planning to expand it to 150 institutions this fall and then more broadly after that. What's the feedback been from the schools that have been using it? The schools like it. Inside of the academy, inside of academia, I think it's it's proven to be very popular. Schools are under pressure to diversify. There's schools are generally, the elite schools especially, are generally whiter and more affluent than the population at large. And there's been you know, backlash. One of the things, you know, if you remember, Trump taxed the endowments of the very wealthiest schools. That came from, a, I think, a place of anger toward these elite schools that they weren't giving folks a fair shake. So a lot of people have a sense that you have to be rich and connected in order to get into these schools. So they're looking for ways to identify students who are smart and can do the work, but are not coming from Beverly Hills. 
how do the student groups stack up against each other? Because white students continually score higher than black and Hispanic students. Asian students still score higher than white students. The test reflects a lot of socioeconomics in the country. So if your parents have a graduate school education, you're much more likely to score higher on the SAT than if they have, don't have a high school education. If they're earning a lot of money, more than a quarter million dollars, then your score is probably a lot higher than folks who are coming from families where they're earning less than $50,000. And this holds true for race as well. Asians uh, score higher than whites, who score higher than Latinos, who score higher than blacks. So there's a lot of stratification in, in this, and the schools are looking to, in some cases, they, they, they're trying to reflect the population of the country at large and the test they point to kids who are doing better but they're pointing toward more rich white kids and Asian kids that's the trouble that the schools are facing so the schools like this because it, it helps contextualize for them where the kids are coming from and to identify kids and help them bring bring them up help put this in context for us because right now with college admissions we're going through a lot of different things we've all heard about the big admissions cheating scandal heavily involved at USC but there's a lot of other colleges involved in it there's colleges that are being sued by students I think Harvard comes to mind they're waiting for judgment to see if they're discriminating against Asian students. Uh, so put this news in context with all of that. There's two big strands coming through. There's this sense of unfairness that I mentioned earlier, that the college system is rigged, and that's this scandal that William Singer was in front of kind of epitomized that, right? He was getting millions of dollars in some cases to rig the system for wealthy kids. And then there's the issue, the broader issue, of how schools are deciding who they should let in and how race plays into that. So the Harvard case is interesting because what they're doing is saying, okay, the Asian kids had higher test scores when they weren't letting them in According to the test scores, they were doing holistic admissions. They were saying that group who sued Harvard is saying that you were discriminating against us because we're Asian. We scored higher numbers, but you didn't let us in uh, significant numbers that, that we should have been. This is all going to come to a head because it's probably going to end up at the Supreme Court. And they're probably going to take a look at affirmative action. And if that happens, then admissions in higher education will change significantly. And the test, the SAT is trying to get in front of this now by essentially creating a proxy for race. I don't know if they would agree with that term, but to some extent, that's what's happening. They're, they're creating a proxy for race so that the schools will be able to identify kids who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, a lot of whom are black and Latino, to get them up into those schools, into these better schools. What is this going to look like? When it's paired up with your SAT score, it's a score basically on a scale of 1 to 100. Well, there'll be a lot of information on the dashboard that they've created. You'll see the SAT score, and then you'll see this, this environmental context, and that gets summarized in this adversity score. 50 is the norm, is the medium. And then north of that indicates that a student has dealt with more adversity in his environment than other students, most students. So a score of 100, you'd be dealing with a kid who probably came from a very poor, very violent, very poorly served high school. And then a score of one would be from a very wealthy neighborhood with a very well-resourced school where kids did very well. And then everybody would fall somewhere in the middle. The worries are mostly going to be from affluent families that, you know, say, hey, this score is probably going to work against my kid. There's a, a strong argument for me that you can't measure adversity with such a simple formula. So a lot of the folks who are writing in the journal saying, hey, I grew up in a house that would be considered privileged, you know, wealthy in a nice neighborhood, going to a good school. But my dad was an alcoholic or my mother had schizophrenia and my brother was violent. All sorts of things can be going wrong that would not show up on this adversity score. And the question is, is it fair if that stuff doesn't? And how could you measure it? I don't know that you could. Doug Belkin, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me over. You're listening to The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and we'll be right back. This is Otis Gray, and for this season of On the Job, we're hitting the road to tell amazing stories of real people and their life's work. From a young woman making dolls for an underserved market 
to folks falling in love at the office. Each episode will surprise you. I love her renaissance spirit. She just likes to do things the old way. I think we're in too much of a hurry these days. Check it out by searching for On the Job from Express Employment Professionals in the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen. You're listening to The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio. Up next, we will tell you how that city life can be damaging your mental health. But first, President Trump has put forward a new immigration plan with some big changes. We'll tell you what you need to know. Our proposal is pro-American, pro-immigrant, and pro-worker. We cherish the open door that we want to create for our country, but a big proportion of those immigrants must come in through merit and skill. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. The president has announced an immigration proposal that would dramatically reshape the legal immigration system here in the United States. The plan did not really address the illegal immigration population at all or dreamers in in what he put forward. But basically what he wants to do is change this to kind of a merit-based system and change how people get in the country. Right now, people sponsor other family members to get in the country and get their green cards. He wants to change all of that. So the president was in the Rose Garden. He gave a speech about what was going on. Tell us a little bit about that, Steph. The key thing about this plan that the White House is rolling out is that it would really change the way we think about immigration. As you said, around two-thirds of visa green cards are given to people who have family members in the U.S. rather than employment-based visas. And what this plan says that we should do is change that up and make it so that most of a little bit more than half of the green cards issued would go to people who are coming to the U.S. for jobs, who have high levels of education, who have been given good job offers in the U.S. and would limit the number of people coming in on these family-based visas. It also deals with border security as well. And what's interesting about what we heard the president talk about is that he really is talking about legal immigration in a positive sense. And I think for the most part, most people would associate the president as being anti-immigrant. And this is something that the White House is really trying to work against. They're trying to show that the president isn't anti-immigrant, but he's pro-legal immigration and anti-illegal immigration. I think that really came through in his speech. Just to put a few more numbers on it, what you were describing, right now it's 12% skill-based, 66% ties to family members, and 22% humanitarian. So they want to change that to people being admitted with 57% skill-based, 33% family-based, and 10% humanitarian. Specifically on the asylum front, because that's what we're dealing with the most right now at the border, how would he change those rules? We don't have a ton of the specifics of how exactly the asylum process would be impacted. We do know that they want to change the process and make it quicker. They want to make it easier for people who are able to come to the U.S. under our asylum laws to get their case cleared, to go through the process quicker than it is right now, and to make it easier for immigration officials to then deport people who would not qualify for asylum. And this is something the administration has been talking a lot about. They have often expressed their frustrations with the way the asylum process works. And even currently at the U.S. border, we have many families from Central American nations being simply let go because we don't have places to keep them 
while they wait for their asylum claims or for their credible fear testing. This has created just an overflow at the border. There is a surge of migrants. And because the asylum process takes so long, it just adds to the backlog there. Notably absent in this plan is anything to do with handling the illegal immigrants currently in the country and the so-called Dreamers and DACA that was absent from the plan. Why did they make a decision not to include any of that in there? Some senior administration officials told reporters that DACA would not be included and that there are different elements they wanted to address throughout the next several years, that there are multiple other ways to approach immigration. There's the legal side, there's the undocumented side, there's temporary work visas, there's border security. And they really wanted to focus on legal immigration and border security. And part of the reason for that is those are issues that tend to have slightly more bipartisan agreements. Still not full bipartisan agreement on a lot of these issues, but they're more likely to have more agreement than something like what to do with the undocumented population in the U.S. And so for that reason, they did not touch the undocumented population. They did not touch dreamers. Let's talk about this immigration plan in broader terms. We know that Jared Kushner is the main guy behind this. He's been working on this for months. What do we know about how he's been crafting this plan? The White House really wants a policy, a plan that unites Republicans, that gives Republicans something that they can point to and say, this is what we want, rather than saying this is what we don't want. And so what we're seeing is they're a little bit less concerned with what Democrats think right now. Not that they're not concerned at all, but they're more concerned about getting Republicans on board and creating something that everyone can agree on. On the other side of things, people that are traditionally with the president on on these things, Mark Krikorian, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, they have a group that advocates for lower legal and illegal immigration numbers. He's saying that this plan is out of touch with the president's base. There's other Republicans that, as you said, you know, they're hoping this could be a unifying thing for them and they can work on something later. So how has the reaction been on both sides? There are some groups who are on the far right. There are the groups that are restrictionists that would like to lower immigration levels who are simply not going to get on board with any plan that doesn't lower overall immigration levels to the U.S. And because this plan maintains those levels of immigration, the number of green cards given out every year, some of those groups, as you mentioned, Mark McCorian, are not going to be on board with it. And one administration official told us that their response to that would be that this plan is about focusing on high-skilled workers and would raise the tax revenue in the U.S. and laid out an argument for why the way they're approaching this is actually in line with these groups. Regardless, as you said, we've seen some people still not happy with the way the plan turned out. But there are others who think it's a great proposal who are on board. And there are a lot of Republican Congress members out there who are still trying to, to wade through the details. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the areas, obviously, that they looked at was air pollution. What they found was that just having poor air quality all the time over time will trigger various mechanisms in our health. Joining us now is Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science. We've known for a long time that the environments that we live and work in can impact our physical health and we can be harmed by a lot of things, whether we realize it or not, things that we're being exposed to constantly we're starting to understand a little bit more about how living the city life, urban dwellers are particularly at risk from impacts of our environment and its effects on our mental health. So what do we know about this, Claire? Over the past several years, even decades, researchers have noticed this connection between an increase or susceptibility towards and 
rates of mental illness and living in city environments, and that's as opposed to living in more rural environments. And that all kind of started in the 1930s when this group of sociologists found that people who were admitted to the Chicago area asylums, that the rates of schizophrenia there were higher among people who were born in cities rather than people who are born in rural areas. And so from then, researchers have found that these rates of mental illness and living in cities are connected, but they've never really delved into the mechanisms behind why this would happen. And so recently, a group of researchers did a look back into all of the research that had been done and tried to find and make these connections and find these mechanisms. So that's the premise of where they're at in the research. And a lot of it, yes, has been on air pollution and things like that. But I think it kind of points at where we can go to next in the research as well. The numbers get interesting, too, because more than half of the world's population already live in cities. That number's supposed to be rising up to nearly 70 percent by 2050. So they say that city dwellers right now face a nearly 40 percent higher risk of depression, 20 percent higher chance of anxiety and double the risk of schizophrenia than people living in rural areas. As you mentioned, a lot of what they focused on was in the area of air pollution and depression. So what are we learning about those two things? The city dwellers in general are just kind of like an interesting case, as we noted in the piece, because people who live in cities do tend to have better access to healthcare and also higher education than, generally speaking, than compared to rural areas. So the idea that we would see these increases in mental illness is strange that this would happen. So one of the areas, obviously, that they looked at was air pollution. What they found was that just having poor air quality all the time, over time, will trigger various mechanisms in our health. So for example, one area that the researchers point out is that it may prompt an inflammatory response in our bodies. And this chronic inflammatory response then over time will trigger our brains to not function optimally. So we will increase some hormones versus others and just this non-optimal behavior could trigger a mental illness. But it's obviously not a strict mechanism that they've identified, and they definitely need to look more into that, but it's one area that they're looking at. And they've particularly found this could have the worst effects on children who live in cities because obviously kids will have such an extended period of time, especially in their developing process, living in these areas with air pollution. One of the things I found interesting is that they, you know, they mentioned, so how do we counteract all of this stuff? One of Mm -hmm. the things that always comes up is nature. You got to get out more. You got to mix it up. You got to go for your walks and get exercise, things like that. But the sights and sounds and smells of greenery and oceans, they give us a mood boost a lot of times. And I think one of the things that a lot of people go through is this notion of rumination. When people start obsessing over some mistakes, troubles that they're they're having, these are common features of what happens when people are experiencing depression and anxiety. But I think even to a larger point, a lot of people do it. But they say that just getting out, getting some of that sun and, and that greenery is important. And that's why in city areas, it's important to have those parks there to uh, plan the city with those things in mind to help people. Right. And so obviously, uh, rumination is this tendency to obsess over one's mistakes and troubles. And it's definitely been a feature in various mental illnesses, but in particular, depression and anxiety. And so one experiment in particular that the researchers point out is that people who tended to go into nature and even in within the city themselves, and not even going outside of the city limits, but just going within parks in the city, tended to be less prone to this rumination. 
if we were to do more studies on that, and we found that that was the case in addition and found the same conclusions over and over again, then we'd be more likely to say, okay, yes, going to parks often makes us less prone to this rumination. So if that's the case, then in the future, when we're either planning cities or planning new city environments or urban areas, or even areas that obviously you can't rework an entire city, but when we're trying to think of rebuilding certain areas of the city, this should definitely be taken into account. Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.